Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often we may not feel good enough. I'm here, thankfully, with Dr. James McKeever to help you face these challenges head on. Dr. McKeever, thanks for coming. Thank you. So we are amid a, a lovely expert here. He's a pediatric psychologist and neuropsycho... Oh my gosh, why did I say that? <laughs> Neuropsychologist. I know, it's funny. Um, He's a neuropsychologist, too. He knows what just went wrong in my brain when I couldn't say that. I'm so glad you're here in arm's reach to save me from myself. Um, he has a deep and, and extensive history taking care of children in the face of chronic and kind of debilitating illness and, and, and also helping care teams really incorporate the psychological needs of children and the understanding of where they are in illness when sick and in well and, and helping um, work with care teams, for example, to improve that. He's done lots of work. Uh, he was raised on the East Coast, came to the West Coast and spent 15 years outside of Seattle Children's and then came to the hospital and is, is here to really help guide us on understanding, I think, a really complicated and kind of scary topic around around self-harm. And when we were talking before we, before we started recording... One of the things that Dr. McKeever said to me of, of something he prides himself on in his work and career is really helping people understand a child's experience in the context of family and life and the relevance of that experience and how important it is uh, in our community and, and, and our lives. So I love that. And we were, we were talking about Fred Rogers, too, as well. We got off topic, who I adore. But okay. So Okay, self-harm is kind of a funny word, and I think people have all sorts of associations with the word self and the word harm. What is, medically speaking, self-harm? So we actually refer to it as non-suicidal self-injury. It's where people deliberately hurt themselves without the intent to die. Yeah. Right? It used to be conflated with suicide, so they would be pushed together. But they're actually somewhat different beasts, although the uh, self-harm, self-injury can lead over time to suicide. Yeah. So backing up, I mean, how many, I mean, sometimes, like right when you said that, my brain started racing of thinking of like, self-harm can be physical. Self-harm can almost be, can be psychological or mental mm -hmm. too, right? How many people, let's start with children, I guess. How many children go through periods of life where they kind of go through the actions of self-harm? So it's reasonably uh, uh, not common in littler kids, elementary school kids, maybe 1% or 2% of that mm -hmm. population. But as you get into adolescence, it goes up as high as 17%. 17% mm. uh, of adolescents have tried to hurt themselves on at least one occasion. Yeah. Uh, and so we want to try to catch those kids and help them before it becomes an ongoing problem for them. So is there a, like a predominance of girls over boys, boys over girls? Uh, girls over boys, although maybe anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of boys at some point tried to self-harm also. Um, and kids that come from uh, different racial or uh, gender backgrounds are at greater risk. Uh, gay, lesbian uh, adolescents are very yeah. high risk. Bisexual and queer. Yeah, and, and, and we know that because, I mean, in some ways it's almost like if you're going through mental anguish, right? I mean, as I understand mm -hmm. self-harm, it's it's the excruciating experience of, of feeling awful um, can lead you to think of different ways to kind of outpace that with a different sensation. I mean, is that a way to think of self-harm? That's a good way to think about it. We, we think there are three 
parts that go into this. One is that you have a vulnerable individual who gets very emotionally dysregulated easily. We tell the adolescents it's like being a Ferrari. You just you just tap you know the tap the accelerator and they go. Yeah. So they get dysregulated easily, and then yeah. they grow up in an environment which does not know how to validate those feelings and help them with those feelings. So they are left at a loss. Hmm. And then as an adolescent, when those feelings start, negative feelings start to overwhelm them, the media out there has lots of portrayals of kids self-harming, yeah. and they say, well, let's try this. Yeah. And then when you do that, the opioids in your brain make you feel a little better after you cut, and you say, oh, that works. Yeah. And then it becomes a habit. Let's talk about that. So when I think of self-harm, I think most families and most practitioners like me, of course, have, th- have think, think about and have thought about cutting. I've certainly taken care mm-hmm. of many teens, particularly teens, to your point on the data, that it's not elementary school kids typically. It's teenagers with cutting. What are other self-injurious or self-harm behaviors? Cutting is really popular, but yeah. we also have kids that burn themselves. We have kids that uh, erase themselves. They get an eraser oh, and they go over and, yeah. over and over and over so you get a yeah. friction burn, basically. Yeah. Uh, boys tend to do things like slam themselves into walls mm-hmm. or bruise themselves or hit mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the main things. That Does headband – it's so funny. It makes me think about – I've never thought of this before or asked this question. Does – you know, kids who headbang mm-hmm. in the early kind of toddler preschool years, is that – does that ever convert into – Different behaviors in adulthood that you know or in adolescence? I don't think so. The kids I've seen that have done headbanging as adolescents, something else is going on with them. Yeah. It's not this. It's not th- like they headbanged as a three-year-old yeah. and that puts uh, them at risk un- for – Unless they tend to be, you know – Dysregular. Uh, uh, no, in the intellectual deficient range where they uh-huh. are having troubles – communicating period. Yeah, right. And don't have another way to yep. do that. Yeah. I mean – yeah. And, oh, ma- so and many of these kids that. we see are very intelligent. Of course. You know? Of course. Yeah. So so self-harm comes up when um, it's almost like there are harmful thoughts about yourself in your mind. You're distressed. You feel like you don't belong. We know there are certain groups of, of, of kids, for example, those who might feel segmented by the messages in media around being lesbian or mm-hmm. bisexual or transgender, right, that they're more likely to um, try to plan to end their life, let alone try to hurt, harm their bodies right. that way. Um, so so – what happens in their – let's go through because you mentioned the opioid, the reaction, right, physiologically and mm-hmm. neuropsychologically to, to your expertise. What happens in that process? So take us through the moment of feeling anguish, a, a teenager potentially going through an episode of self-harm, and then what happens physiologically? So, you know, they have a intense – sometimes it's a longer buildup. Sometimes it's just an immediate reaction. depends on their own ability to kind of cope. Uh, and they have this intense, overwhelming negative feeling. Mm. about themselves and it gets directed at themselves and they the only thing in the world that they feel they can control is what they do right in that moment which is to harm themselves mm. uh, and once they do that a they've had that sense of control b they've been the one to hurt themselves nobody else has yeah and they may have had other experiences in their lives that hurt them Mm-hmm. Uh, and see, you, your body does kind of learn how to cope with pain. So when you, we, we have our normal reaction when we're hurt. Uh, and so you get a sense of relief. And it's a very intense sense of relief. So that over time, that becomes addictive. And it becomes something they turn to more and more and more. Mm-hmm. It also means they're not developing other ways to cope. Yeah. So they become less adaptive in handling emotions in any other more positive way. 
Yeah, so so that gives that kind of sense of, of a spiral, right? Mm-hmm. That you start doing it, you get a little bit of relief. Why wouldn't it's almost like a, a drug addiction, right? To the point of you go back to it because it makes you feel better. It's a solution. Mm-hmm. And as you do that and reach towards that, you downright you there's no more time to do the other good coping behaviors mm-hmm. that way. That's right. Are kids who I'm kind of this is a leading question. Kids who are, are use are self-injurious or ha- use self-harm are at higher risk for suicide ideation and suicide attempts, right? They are over time. Yeah. And they're also at higher risk for eating disorders and for substance use disorders. Is are eating disorders and in ways thought of as self-harm? Not directly, but we use the same treatment methods effectively with them as we do with the self-harming kids. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What do we? Do, what do you do? How do you? So if a parent is listening, or even a pediatrician is listening, right, and we're taking care of a mm-hmm. anxious or depressed teen with self harm or self injurious behaviors of any kind, or, or or even frankly, a child with eating disorder, what's the best way forward? So the first thing is the primary care doctor needs to ask. Uh, teenagers, have you ever felt like hurting yourself on purpose or have you ever hurt yourself on purpose? Do you and think that should be asked at every well child? I think that should be. Mm-hmm. And also, have you ever felt like you didn't want to live anymore? Mm-hmm. So those are good screening questions. Mm-hmm. Parents need to trust their gut. If they think something's going on with their child, they need to ask the same question in an empathetic way, not in a blaming way. Mm-hmm. What we don't want to do is take a overwhelmed kid and overwhelm them more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the pattern as I've experienced as a, a pediatrician with self-harm and the cutting in typical is then the covering up of that, mm-hmm. the almost shame that kind of follow, maybe follows that sense of relief. Then there's a bit of shame. Then there's cover-up so that somebody doesn't kind of catch them in it because they like because it's effective, yeah. right? It's a Band-Aid in some ways, and the Band-Aid works. Yeah. Um, so... So parent, so they need to be asked about it. In, in general, I, I love your approach with empathy around even the suffering that's occurring when this is happening, the relief that comes from it, and then the addictive quality and spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what? So we ask. Now we know it's a problem. Then what? They have to get help. They can't do it on their own. Parents should be very careful not to blame, to become dysregulated themselves, to uh, yell at the kid, punish the kid, to think that they can take control over this and stop the kid. They really need to go and get help from somebody who knows how to deal with uh, self-harm and suicidality. Somebody, uh, they may need psychopharmacological consultation because it's often accompanied by depression or anxiety. Uh, but they need to work with somebody. And what we found with the teenagers is it's a family treatment, that in adults we can maybe work just with an individual. But teenagers are so much a part of their family, Mm -hmm. and the dysregulation and that need for true validation from your parents and others is so important to teenagers that we have to get the parents in working on this along with the kids. That's such an important point. I don't think I've heard someone say it like that. I mean, I that I that teens are so their their support and confidence and like I guess safety is based in part on their parents really approving of them still. I think yes. I think, te- I think people forget that because teens' attitudes distance that from them, even mm-hmm. though the real truth is that teens need that. Yeah. Need that safety. And this is hard. It's hard for parents to acknowledge how much their kid might be hurting. Yeah. And yeah. it produces feelings of guilt and anger. Yeah. And and the parent needs to cope with that themselves. So yeah. we teach parents how to cope with those things themselves and not unload it on the kid. Yeah. So you are a support and an understanding person. We teach 
explicitly how to validate your kid. When your kid says da-da-da-da-da, you come back with, I can see that you feel that way. Of course somebody would feel that way when that happens. Yeah. You belong. That feeling belongs in your life. Yep. It's a fair feeling. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The message is if it's a not fair feeling is going to be even worse, right? Don't yeah. feel that way. You shouldn't yeah. feel that way. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Those are the wrong messages. Yeah. That's well, I love that Biden quote. I don't know if you know it. It's a Joe Biden quote about, um, you know, if you if if you tell your kids not to sweat the small stuff, right? If you keep saying um, that the little stuff doesn't matter in these kids, that when they grow up, the little stuff is the big stuff. They'll just learn that that doesn't matter either, right? Mm-hmm. That the little – like we always have to kind of re- reduce ourselves back to that time and space of import and recognize that the things that kids are tantrum about to the things that kids are in anguish about is as big as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. And and it may not feel like that to us, mm-hmm. that the dance doesn't matter or that that social exclusion doesn't matter, whatever it is, in the context. That reframing sometimes is damaging, actually, in that way. That's right. And some of these kids are very sensitive. Yeah. They really feel things quite intensely. Yeah. So do grownups. <laughs> like, as me. So, okay, so let's say, so, um, you know, the biggest concerns are why is a child doing it? So I think I'm understanding from you. A child is doing self-harm to get rid of the other harm that, that is inside their mind, the harm yep. that they're not okay and not good and this is and life is bad or it's maybe a, not worth it. It's living. a solution to them, and it's the only solution they have come up with at that point in time. Yeah. And— how do we get them to stop? We we have them see someone like you, a trained psychologist or neuropsychologist who can, with a family, guide them towards a plan. Is that cognitive behavioral therapy? I mean, what is the typical approach? Uh, in Seattle, we often use dialectical behavior therapy, which was developed by Marsha Linehan at the University of Washington for adults and now mm. has been languished down to teenagers. And we have a ongoing program at the hospital in this. Uh, there are uh, one or two others in the area who also do this. Yeah. And it's a tripartite theme uh, or program where we work with the kid individually with the therapist, skilled in validation yep. and helping teach skills. We put the kids in a in a classroom basically with the, some other kids, teaching them the skills they're going to need to cope better and encouraging them to do so and getting some peer support for that. We don't let them talk about their self-harm. Huh. Right? We talk about what they do to cope. The, the positive stuff, yeah. the good stuff. And then we coach the families. Yeah. So the families have an on, uh, ongoing coach they can call any time for how do I deal with the situation. My daughter or son is da-da-da-da-da, what do I do? Yeah. Scripting almost. Scripting. Yeah. And it takes a year or two. It takes a year or two. Yeah, for them really to learn. It's like learning Japanese. How long would it take to learn Japanese? A really long time. It would yeah. take me much longer than two years, just to be very clear, because I'm not very good at linguistics at this point. But okay. Wow, it takes a year or two. So that's that's a newsflash to me. Thank you for letting me know that. Um, so it's a long road, right? What's the cure rate like? I mean, what's the – how it, successful are you? It's pretty good. I, I don't know the numbers offhand, but it's pretty good. Most kids will get over self-harm behaviors it. and yeah. not cut themselves for their life as a coping mechanism when they feel anguish. Right, right. Yeah. And they will now be walking through town with better coping skills for whatever comes at them. Yeah. And hopefully when they become parents, we'll be able to teach this to their kids. Yeah, I love why well, I love that about, you know, intervention early on anxiety or depression, anything. It's like this is – I was just saying that in clinic yesterday. I mean this is a life skill. Mm-hmm. Like if you get to learn it now, you're going to use it through your whole lifetime and it's going to be easier for you. Why not start now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else that parents should know about self-harm? So here's what I'm hearing in, in summary is that 
it's pretty common, right? It's a bit more common in girls than boys, somewhere around 70, 17, which is almost one in five teens, may at some point engage in some self-harm behaviors. Um, it is often a way to deal with or get relief from the feelings kind of of anguish or intense negative reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, they get a sense of release almost physiologically. The chemicals in their brain change a little bit. It can become addictive and become a, a spiraling pattern that way. Kids who over time continue to self-harm may be at increased risk for attempting to end their life or suicide. And that parents should approach their kids with empathy and openness to explore how they can help a child know that they're supported and get rid of this as the way they turn to deal with their kind of feelings of anguish. Mm -hmm. Um, It can take one to two years of consultation with and support from potentially multiple ways, support groups, families, understanding the child in the context of life, and then um, a teen having someone like you guiding them through even what to do and what good choices to choose as alternatives. That's right. That's right. What else should parents know if they suspect their child today is, or they know someone who's dealing with this in their home? Give us some scripts almost of how would you suggest approaching a teen about this? Like, what are the words that we could use if my teen's in the car or my teen's in their bedroom and I walk in and I'm, I've been, it's been rotting in me for a few days mm-hmm. and I want to ask them about this? What, what, could, what could they say? Again, you want to trust your gut. Yeah. You're going to say, you know, I've been noticing you have been down, withdrawn, whatever it is the kid has been. Yeah. And I'm worried about you, honey. Uh, and I, I need to ask you, um, have you ever f- wanted to end your life? Or have you ever wanted to harm yourself deliberately to make the bad feelings go away? The chances are they may deny it. Uh-huh. But if you're really worried about it, say, well, I still want you to go see your primary care doc. Uh-huh. Because if you have been, you know, well, I wouldn't say this necessarily, but if they have been cutting on themselves, there'll be marks from that. Yeah. And I want you to talk with your doctor about these feelings privately. Mm-hmm. And uh, if and I think we really need to go talk to somebody together. And we need to do that. Yeah. And they'll say, no, no, we don't. We don't. We don't. Uh-huh. Say, well, yeah, but I, I'm your mom or dad, and I, I really want this for you because I think we can do better. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Um, The one thing I pull out of that, too, in particular, is you endorsing that a parent says, I want you to go have a private conversation with your doctor. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Even if the therapy and intervention for self-harm is involving a parent, it's good to get out of the room so a teenager can have a conversation with someone like me, like a general pediatrician, to to, to divulge that. And they will typically talk about this, particularly if if a pediatrician finds marks or asks the hard hard questions. Yeah, the other thing that happens is Kids get reinforced for self-harm. They get lots of attention. It might be negative attention, mm-hmm. but they get attention, not mm-hmm. in, sometimes from parents who, let me see your arms and da-da-da-da, but also from peers. And so we work very hard to try to cut off that attention that gets handed to that. So if they have, if they have cuts on their body, they should see their doctor, and their doctor will assess them and do whatever's needed medically. Yeah. You can be really surgical about that. I mean, just kind of like this is A, this is B. We'll just deal with what the cause is. Yeah. Figure out how to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for more information, we will put information up on Seattle Mama Doc on self-harm and ways to help support kids who are feeling this anguish and reminders of making sure you seek help immediately. And I love their, their strongest message to me in this was, you know, if you're a parent and you're worried about this, trust your gut. Mm-hmm. That's right. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. The reality is parenting is a high-stakes job. The good news is you've got this. 
Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc Podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from.